If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about our, our mission statement, and I think you probably know it by now, it's on the screen, it's back there, it's over there, and it reads, in Christ we love people, impact our community, and make disciples. And what that means is, is that we carry out the church's mission, God's mission in Christ. We're united to him. There's a bond, there's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have been saved. Our sins have been forgiven. Heaven is our home. God loves us and is with us. And in response, in response to all that we've been given, we love God and we seek to accomplish his mission here on earth. And so we love people. We love people who are like us. We love people who are different than us. We even are called to love people that we might say are our enemies. And that love that we show is not just demonstrated in words, but also in action. We tell others about Jesus. Our love is shown as we impact the community for Christ. We invest in that community. When I talk about the community, I'm talking about the community around the church here or the community where you live. And it even extends to the, to the worldwide community. Our love for people and our desire to impact the community actually leads us to make disciples. If you were with us last February, we came up with a definition for disciples. It's a, it's a good definition. It's probably not a, a perfect definition, but it's on the screen here. It says, a disciple is one who knows God personally and pursues Jesus passionately, modeling everything in their life after the character and priorities of Christ. I think it's a good definition. I want to read it to you again and put even more emphasis. A disciple is one who knows God personally. They have a relationship with the Lord. They pursue Jesus passionately. He is the focus of their life. And they model everything in their life and their, after the character and the priorities of Christ. We seek to imitate Christ in how we live. Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and it commands us to make disciples. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As a result of Jesus' great commission, our goal as a church, our goal as individuals, is to make disciples who then go out and make new disciples. It's straightforward. And yet, it seems at times to be so difficult. It's easy to become discouraged. And I think we get discouraged when we try to invest into another person to disciple them. We get discouraged because we're not perfect. We're sinners. We fall short. The people we disciple... They're not perfect either. And even Jesus, who is perfect, didn't make perfect disciples. I want to give you three examples of disciple-making discouragements from my life. And these discouragements can actually fall into three different categories. And the first results from trying to make disciples without first establishing a strong relationship. 
Several years ago, we developed a discipleship program here at Bethesda called Fan to Flame. You might remember it if you were here. It was based on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. And the initial rollout of this discipleship effort actually connected teens with older mentors. And it was a great concept. It was biblical. But we were missing a key ingredient. The teens that we matched up with these adults had no previous relationship with those adults. We didn't allow natural relationships to start building first. We wanted them to dive right in and start discipling them. And the fact of the matter is, is it was awkward. It didn't work well. And I was reminded out of that that relationships are key to disciple-making. And then the second category of my discipleship disappointments or discouragements is to forget intentionality. I've done this. It, it often happens with people that maybe we've known for years. You know, people you grew up with in school and that, they're your best friends. Our relationship with them is so, it's strong, it's strong. But the problem is, is we always have a great time when we're out with these friends, but we forget to intentionally share our faith. Spiritual conversations rarely happen. And the truth about it is, is if we really care about these people who are supposedly so close to us, wouldn't it make sense to tell them about Jesus? And then the, the third category of discipleship discouragements that I've experienced is, is a little different. It comes from um, an unwillingness to be discipled. Years ago, I had a, a young man come up to me and ask me to, to disciple him. And we had known each other for a long time. I knew him when he was a little boy. There was intentionality. We were going to talk about Jesus. The problem was is that he didn't want to learn, at least from me. And, and so instead of me mentoring him, what he wanted to do was to tell me how to run the church. <laughs> he had some good ideas, I will admit. But he wasn't teachable. See, making disciples requires a relationship it requires us to be intentional and there has to be a willingness to grow and actually that willingness to grow is on both sides both the person being discipled and the the mentor and, and i share these examples with you just to make the point that making disciples isn't easy it doesn't always work the way you and i picture it working but it, and i want to make a point here so please hear this our disciple-making efforts are more than worth it. Even in our discouragements, even in discipleship disasters, there are blessings. And the fact of the matter is, is that we can do it. You can do it. I can do it. Every one of us has the potential to be a disciple-maker. Last year, we went over our mission statement as we are the beginning of this year. And then after we finished that, we spent 10 weeks talking about disciple-making. We studied how to disciple like Jesus discipled. And today's message is going to be a, a really quick review of what we did during those 10 weeks last year with an added twist. Now I'm going to use some terms that some of you might remember. One of them is four-chair Discipling. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Nod. That's good. It sounds familiar. 
But if it's not familiar to you, if you don't remember it, or maybe you weren't here, that's okay, because I'm just going to give you kind of a peek into four-chair discipling. See, four-chair discipling is, is a tool. People are in different places in their walk with Christ. And those different places where they are can be identified, and they're helpful to us in specifically ministering to them to where they are right now. And that's where four-chair discipleship is useful. Disciple-making isn't like baking a cake. I mean, I think we'd be thought it would be great to have a, a simple recipe to do it. If you could take one quart of faith, two cups of prayer, and maybe a bucket full of the Bible, and you mix them all together, and you put them in the oven, and you let them bake, and then later on, gee, out pops a disciple. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, it's not quite that straightforward. And yet, you know, there actually is a pattern to effective disciple-making. Jesus had a method. Jesus had a pattern. You, you could even call it a discipleship pathway. Now, the, the twist that I mentioned a moment ago is this discipleship pathway. Last year, as we did Disciple Like Jesus, we had a, a discipleship leadership team, and we worked on the pathway last year. We came up with ideas of what it would look like, but we never quite got to the point where we rolled it out to you. And so this morning, I'm going to roll out a version, a version of that pathway. To start off with, to using our four-chair discipling terminology, some people are in chair number one. People sitting in chair number one are not yet Christians. We could call these people seekers. They're, they're looking for something. But often they don't know what they're looking for. Or they're looking in all the wrong places. And the fact of the matter is that you and I, we know what they're looking for. His name is Jesus. And so what we do with these seekers is we invite them in. And John 135, Jesus puts inviting into action. He says, uh, it says, the next day again, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at, uh, excuse me, let me start over. The next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That's about four o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus simply invited the two disciples of John the Baptist to come and see. Inviting is the first step in our discipleship pathway. A, a few verses later, though, we see that Jesus isn't the only one doing inviting. Shortly after meeting Jesus, Philip offered his own advice. Reading from John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel replied. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. We talk a lot about inviting people. 
We invite people to come and see what God is doing, what God is doing in this church or through this church. Many of you sitting here this morning are here as a result of an invite. Someone invited you to a church service. Someone invited you maybe to another church activity. We might have already been a Christian when we got that invite, but maybe we were looking for something. Maybe we were looking for a new church home, and so we came. Others of us, when we received that invite, didn't know Jesus, but we were curious. We were seeking. And so we came. Inviting takes courage. If you've invited someone to church or to a church activity, you know that your invitation can be rejected because it's happened to you. Rejection never feels good. But still, we keep inviting. We keep inviting because we have something that other people need. We've got Jesus. Earlier, you, you heard Charlie and Sue talk about our, our community groups. Accepting an invite to a community group might be easier than accepting an invite to come to a church service. Visiting a community group could be the first step in a person following Jesus. You know, it's a lot easier to go to somebody's house to meet with some other people than to come maybe in a worship service, especially if you've never been to one. And community groups have a great potential for disciple-making. In fact, at Bethesda, we're going to use them to make new disciples. Another place to invite seekers is to our lunch bunch. We meet on Wednesdays at 11.30. We're a friendly group. We have fun. We're nice. Most of the time we're nice. We do enjoy each other and we grow. Years ago, um, when my faith was just starting to take off, there was a guy named Jim Benton, and Jim Benton took me under his wing. Jim worked for Compassion Compassion International, the Christian Child Sponsorship Organization, And Mary and I had been sponsors with them for about a year when we received an invite to become a volunteer with Compassion. And after I filled out the application to become a volunteer, Jim invited Mary and I in. He took several of us potential volunteers out to dinner. And the dinner was actually a chance to get to know each other, but it was also a chance to come and see what volunteering at Compassion International was all about. But Jim Benton didn't stop there. Once I became a volunteer, he invited me to join him to work at concerts and music festivals. A relationship was starting to build as we did ministry together. Jim was intentional in sharing his faith and his mission work with Compassion International. Jim invested. He invested in me. And that's the second step on the discipleship pathway. It is to invest. We invest in another person. Investing correlates to chair two of four chair discipleship. The person in chair two is a believer. They've trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but their faith might be young. It's probably not fully developed. It's immature, you could say. And so chair two is a time where people are growing. Unfortunately, some people never quite get past chair number two. The call that we make to Christians in chair two is to follow Jesus. And so we invest in them. Investing requires a strong relationship because we have to adopt them into our spiritual family. 
Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, he said this, he said, Timothy, I constantly remember you in my prayers. And then he added, I long to see you, that I might be filled with joy. See, Timothy had become like a child to Paul. There was a great relationship there. There was an investment. Jesus invested three years into his disciples. He taught them. And to invest in someone is also to teach them. And we start teaching others by telling them or helping them understand their identity in Christ. There's some passages that relate to that identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John, 1 John 3.1 states, See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sown for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. So don't be afraid. You are worth far more than many, many sparrows. Our identity is in Christ. We are new creations. We are valued. We are children of the King. And how awesome is that? Once a person realizes who they are in Christ, we begin to teach them the basics of the Christian faith. We teach them how to walk in Christ. 2 John 1, 6 states, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In Ephesians 5, 8, we read, walk as children of light. You know, when a child takes those first couple of steps, it's, it's so exciting. Walking opens up an entire new world to them. Toddlers explore. Their exploration often doesn't go smoothly. They fall down. They get bumps and bruises and cuts but before long, they're running. And then they just fall down harder. But it's similar to a new Christian learning to walk in Christ. Their, their first steps are not steady. They might be afraid. They're, they're not sure about this new life they have. They, they fall a few times. There will be bumps and bruises, but it's great to see a Christian learn how to run. We invite, we invest, and then we are called to inspire. Inspire is the, the third step along our discipleship pathway. It corresponds with chair three. See, a person in chair three is a disciple. They are a follower of Jesus. They are a worker. And so we inspire them to do greater things. And one way to do that is to go on fishing trips. In other words, we do ministry together. Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. It was the beginning of doing ministry together. They went fishing for men. The disciples did ministry side by side with Jesus. Jesus inspired them to change the world. I think some of our times of greatest spiritual growth happen as we do ministry together with others. 
mission trips, mission trips can be incredibly inspiring. Our teens, whenever they go on work camp, they come back and they are on fire. They're excited. Their lives have been changed. I remember a mission trip to Haiti not too long ago. Rick Grazza and, and Mike Wright and I were with a team from Quest E-Free Church. It was a good week. We all got sick. It still was a special time. But I have to tell you, I was inspired. I was impressed by Rick and Mike working in the 95-degree heat on a roof of a building just hours after a night of bowing at the porcelain throne. They did it. We've taken teams to, to Mexico. It seems like every trip to Mexico, we build a concrete cistern, mostly by hand. It's backbreaking work. And yet, it's amazing to serve side by side with Bethesda members. And such inspirational moments don't just occur at work camp or on mission trips. They also occur here during VBS or at King's Kids Camp or maybe whenever we're together working on a project. Anytime we do ministry together, there's a chance to grow together and to be inspired. And if you don't believe me, just show up during the final program of camp or that final Friday at VBS. Find opportunities to serve with others. It, it doesn't have to be an overseas trip. It doesn't even have to be a week-long event. It can be just a few hours right here at Bethesda. It can be an hour or so in a community group. The second way Jesus inspired his disciples was by setting an example. A very special moment occurred on the night of the Last Supper. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the world, washed his disciples' feet. And if you've been in church, you've heard that so many times that I think it loses its, its effectiveness because think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of everything, washed the grimy, dirty, stinky feet of his disciples. He lowered himself, he humbled himself to do the work of a servant. And this is what Jesus said about his act of humility. He said, do you not understand, or do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you were right, for so I am. If, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you should do as I have done. Talk about a challenge. We, too, inspire through acts of humble service. Remember, people are watching. And what examples is your life showing them? The, the last step in our discipleship pathway is to make an impact. And it corresponds to chair four, which are disciple makers. Disciple makers bear much fruit for the kingdom by making disciples who then turn around and make new disciples. Now, some of you are probably pretty astute. And if you look at the screen, you notice that the first three steps in this discipleship pathway begin with I, right? They actually begin with I-N, as in invite, invest, and inspire. The last step begins with I am for impact. 
Now, I have to tell you, in our leadership team for discipleship, this caused some challenges because it's different. It doesn't fit, but I think that's exactly why it works. Because with impact, the focus changes. With invite and invest and inspire, the person that's being discipled is often on the receiving end. Someone is pouring into them, into their life. But with impact, that person who has been poured into is now 